All right, folks. This has been yet another edition of Radio Blackout here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I want to thank DJ Calron for coming out. Um, playing some great tunes for us for the last hour. Um, and uh, we'll be back here next week, same time, same place, with more electronic music for your listening pleasure. Up next, Living Writers with T. Hetzel. Uh, this this week's edition features writers Linda Gregerson or writer Linda Gregerson so (laughs) please enjoy that after which uh, we have free speech radio news Uh, then our daily exercise show and your ass will follow followed by Sarah Man and the local music show so please do enjoy Stay tuned all day, all night. Great programming 24 7. Okay, here's Living Writers with Linda Gregerson. Enjoy. Bye. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Linda Gregerson is here. Linda, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, T. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to see you across the table here. Likewise. <laughs> and I should say we're taping this on April 8th, 2011. Um, so now we're placed in time, Linda. Oh, good. <laughs> on the continuum. <laughs> that will be the most organized I've been all day. Right, well, it's early yet. <laughs> Um, well, Linda, uh, that you've, you've chosen the music, will you say, for the show that we'll be hearing during our breaks? You Could bet. you tell us a little yeah, bit about it? I adore this recording. Um, that was Jean Redpath, uh, you heard, the fantastic Scottish singer, uh, doing songs of Robert Burns. Um, there she recorded uh, with um, a, a wonderful accompanist, but also who was also a scholar um, of, of Burns, uh, Sergei Hovey. Uh, the complete Burns songs, and they're just ravishing. This is one called Lady Marianne. And do you, when you're writing poems, is this something that might be in the background? You know, your, I don't listen. I'm, I'm afraid to confess. Um, no. <laughs> I don't listen to music. The only time I, when, I, when I'm writing, I just, I, can't, I need silence. I can't, I mean, I can have sort of miscellaneous noise out the window or in the street or in the household, but I really need to listen for the words that are going to be on the page and I just music I I love it too much I go in 
I tend to it when it's on, so it doesn't work. It's right. It shifts your it. attention no directly kind. to it. Not right. classical, <laughs> not not rock, not nothing, nothing. <laughs> oh, so but then this is the music where you're sort of going through that you go to to listen just for more to be enchanted. Heart, to be to oh. be enchanted. Also, I listen to music when I cook. Yes. No, but maybe not this music no, what, or a little depends. Al Green or what? No. Yeah, 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 yeah. It varies. It varies. <laughs> well, Linda, before we go further, uh, I'll just take a moment to read the short bio on the back of your your book, uh, the National Book Award finalist, Magnetic North. Um, let's see. Linda Gregerson is the author of the acclaimed collections Waterborne, The Woman Who Died in Her Sleep and Fire in the Conservatory. Among her many honors are an American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature, three Pushcart Prizes, two National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the prestigious Kingsley Tufts Award. Linda, thanks for, for being here again. And so, and I should say, you're, you're Michigan's own. So I we're am. rightly I've been proud here of you. Ever now. <laughs> Since 1987. 1987. Yep. Did you, when you came in 1987, did you have any, because you had moved around because you, you began like your, your collegiate career at Oberlin. Yep. At graduating yep. At, from there and then moving to Northwestern um, and then over to Iowa. With some uh, dilatory years in between, actually, I was I was working in the theater, which was really fun. It's what I would did. I sort of took officially took a leave of absence from my doctoral work at Northwestern, and I worked with an experimental theater company for a number of years, and then um, back to uh, a PhD via Iowa and the MFA in poetry. Oh, I see. Because oh, that's so Northwestern. You actually decided I to started take a, a break. PhD. At the, I at, did. Yeah. At, okay. And then, and that was in Renaissance, which is what I do, which is my scholarly field. And it was a divine time to be there in Renaissance. It was the drama I worked on. It was the drama I always thought I was going to work on, and uh, the magnificent Shakespearean scholar Sam Schoenbaum was on the faculty then and editing Renaissance drama there so so perhaps you became so too inspired so that you well, had to leave and actually go I'd, to the stage yeah I'd acted all the way through college and so it was I missed that part of it and and it happened that the director I then worked with um, had moved his California company to my former college and was doing a residency there and was auditioning new people so I got lured back it was great work it was amazing and there were amazing people in the company at the time as well I also think that it must really have informed your scholarship to have been a part where you're embodying the roles and the pieces on the stage so to have that experience as well as this ob observer or looking around the uh, into the depths of history like some sort of like the criticism aspect yeah. or theory aspect but yeah. to have embodied the piece I I really believe that, that, that acting was the way I learned how to think. Um, I think it's the first, first place I learned how to think in the beginning when I was very young and just doing it in school. Were um, you acting when you were in elementary school too, Linda? No, or? But, but high school. <laughs> yeah, in I mean, school. all that, no, no. Um, well, it, it, no, I really do think having to locate through line in performance, and again, especially in the experimental work, where one wasn't necessarily doing a traditional character, and it wasn't it wasn't governed by the ordinary um, conventions of mimetic uh, realism, was extremely important, and I, I think really has has had enormous effect on my sense of 
poetic shape when I work now in the medium that's my primary creative medium, which is which is poetry. And so I think I was actually thinking that you were doing um, works that may have been um, more related to Renaissance scholarship, but but you did say it was experimental in nature. So could you say what what were some of yeah? Those well, the plays? the the, the, the and this production seventies. The company, yeah, this was uh, early 70s, and uh, Herbert Blau, the sort of wonderful director who founded San Francisco Actors Workshop, and in that capacity had really introduced uh, America to all the, um, well, to, to Samuel Beckett, and, and, and did legendary productions of Genet, and, 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 and all the sort of hot, European um, playwrights at that time, and that had been in the 50s and uh, 60s, was then second generation uh, artistic director at at Lincoln Center, and had then founded California Institute of the Arts um, and uh, with Bob Corrigan. And this was the company that actually began at CalArts and Again, I mean, among the other members of the company were Bill Irwin and Julie Taymor and a lot of really immensely gifted and interesting people um, who've gone on to, to make most of the people with whom I work are st- in that company are st- still working in the theater. Um, and I just got lured back to uh, the page, which um, is, is, is right for my life. It's right. I just uh, it, it what felt lure, like a sort of um, uh, wandering, but it, but it's 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 it was the right wandering for me. It, it well, it actually it actually seems to make sense when looking at it. Maybe in the moment, it felt like a wandering or a tension of being pulled back and forth between two aspects of your yourself. <laughs> but it seems actually to. To, when you start to look at it all on the page, these the dates, um, it seems as if it makes sense, Linda. Well, I, it, it's it's the closest I can come to sense. <laughs> there's that part of life. For all of us. <laughs> there's that part of life that we think we do on purpose, and that may or may not be the case. And then there's the stuff where that seems entirely inadvertent, but that actually it really is responding to pretty deep undertones what your core of allegiance. Is. Exactly. And and would you have you ever thought about working with the um, the the poems as plays, like putting a or, no. no? I don't write for the stage. I don't know how to write for the stage. I think I would be terrible at writing for the stage. But even it's, experimentally, even going well, to that, not necessarily. What, but but I um, <laughs> writing the, the the lure of especially poetry for me. I mean, I I do two kinds of writing. I do discursive. Writing, and I still do scholarship, and those are immensely important. To do critical writing and do, do scholarly work is a very, very important part of what I love. Because uh, is, is that continuing with the thinking? Like when you said, I, I learned how to think, is that Yeah, of- I, I think so, though the traces of it would be harder to locate and explain i think they're they're more direct in the poetry because because it's as because of this through line issue and 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 evolved shape and one is responsible for making a different kind of sense in in scholarly writing and i it's not a discipline that's very 
natural to me, and therefore I idealize it, and it seems immensely glamorous and appealing, and I do it as best I can. But but I was about to say that working on poetry is is in many ways the opposite. Also, just there are there are there are imaginative lodgings that are continuous for me, but in every practical way, it's the opposite of doing collaborative um, improvisational work or work that's that's that develops based on improvisational method because you're working there uh, irreducibly in in a collaborative mode with other people and that's what's exhilarating about it and that's what's impossible about it and that's why you can almost never ever make a living at it or grow old doing it <laughs> and there is at least the illusion of uh, control when one is alone with the page, um, there's a clearing out of every other contingency. And uh, I love that stricture, that restriction, that narrowing down. And again, the surround of silence that's actually very important to me when I'm working on a poem. So I don't, it might well be the case that it would be thrilling to go back and write collaboratively with some experimental performers. And I adore it when my students are theater majors and, you know, we talk about theater and so forth. But I I would have to give up a part of what the, the creative work has come to mean to me and has been essential for. And it, and it feels as though um, that you're you're trying to find some um some some truth uh which is a, a weighted word of course but by um but something that and maybe if it moves on like it maybe it's not always but for that moment because i because when you're speaking linda i'm imagining you at work um and this and the necessary between you and the page and and this element of control well uh, control only because it's it's it, it it's the economy of poetry that i um that drew me to it first it's the working in a highly compressed and sort of mode with kind of maximum pressure per cubic inch uh on, on the language and i don't mean to say that that Poetry itself is a product of uninterrupted uh, will, hardly. Um, but nor did you suggest that. But 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 that. Um, but 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 I think of it as an instrument for discovery, and that restriction, that sort of narrowing down to words and page and to few words on a white page, is to me what gives the. Uh, genre it's it's leverage uh, and and i I work hard to in fact be out of control but in very particular ways by 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 balancing um, a lot of formal and um, musical demands yes the use maybe and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the terset. Um, sure. Later on, because the bet. Use, use of the form. Um, and in an interview with, with our conversation with David Baker, um, I think in 2009, Linda, there was a moment where... Um, that was in the Kenyan Review, I yes, think. Yes, yeah. in the Kenyan Review. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the great mystery is the cusp we call the present, which has always escaped me, except in the context of a poem or the voice of a child. 
<laughs> and so in a way, I was wondering, is that almost this way of saying, like, why you write? Oh, absolutely. I have a very hard time uh, living in the present. For, for one thing, I, I think I'm, um, I'm just a very easily distracted human being. And everything goes by without my noticing. And, I mean, I feel as though I, I'm in danger of sleeping through life. It's always, that's been the part of that, that sort of harrowing, um, driven, uh, thematic in Beckett that has always um, moved me uh, immensely and frightened me. Um, and poetry is my way of trying to attend with uh, with enough rigor and lucidity and energy to so that I can imagine that well this at least this at least didn't escape me altogether this didn't go by in an altogether in a blur and I forgotten I said that part about the voice of a child but I think um, having children has been the great stunning gift that life has given me. I still can't get over it. I'm just, I can't get over it, actually. And I think children give us that, that remarkable awakening into the very fleeting present moment. It's an extraordinary gift. I mean, they, 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 they give us the impression and perhaps the reality that we actually will have lived a bit before we die. I think it's stunning. Uh, they're stunning. Their presence is just, um, is remarkable. And Linda, that, that is lovely, um, what you've just said. Um, and when you're saying the children, do you mean the children of their own childhoods? Or do you mean children even as they're growing, even because we would be steps ahead of them each Anyway, well, but I wonder. I, I mean, I mean both. I suppose I, I, I've, I, my children are grown now, and it's thrilling to see them as their lives unfold. And I'm by no means ahead of them. I mean, I'm way behind. And I, well, I think in, that's in, generally in true. That's well, no, no, no. I think actually one is like way, way oh. behind kids all along. I mean, way behind. You can't keep up. And just when you think, oh, I've caught up to that level, I now know how to pack the diaper bag. You know, they're like, they're <laughs> off to college. Um, once, just as one gets a grasp, all that one has grasped is obsolete. And I think that's a tonic thing. I think that's good for us to just I really, really do. But I am speaking um, in particular about the, the vividness of very young children and their being in the world and, and their aptitude for seeing, their aptitude for joy, um, that, that, that we're, just, we're just duller creatures than they are. We are. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back. Today on the program, Linda Gregerson, her, her latest collection, Magnetic North, and the good news is there's a collection on its way. We'll be right back. In summer, when the hay was mown, and corn waved green and
welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're in luck because today on the program, Linda Gregerson is here um, and you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel and thanks to Liz Wason for um, being our steady hand and the control booth <laughs> and playing all these lovely songs. It's yeah, it's it's yeah. very mesmerizing. I, I think we we all went into really it. enchanting. Yeah, I think it's actually it probably lowers blood pressure. <laughs> Maybe I'll yeah, get really the CD. Robert Burns. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Linda, would you mind? We've mentioned Magnetic North, um, and would you mind reading one of the poems from the collection? No, I'd be delighted. And in fact, it occurs to me that one of them does uh, touch base a little in in the theater. And, and and in what I regard as, in fact, the, the, the most, the greatest theatrical moment that has ever um, been written for the stage, and that's the play within a play in Midsummer Night's Dream when the Mechanicals do the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe. Um, but this poem actually. Um, this this be, this be actually surfaces in Waterborne. She does. Too. Yeah. So I mean, I think about that. I think about that scene all the time. I think about it. Do you remember it? Do, do you want me could to you, say could something? You, you bet. You it? bet. So, so we have um, we have thick-handed men who are not used to doing this, who are invited, who, who have prepared in honor of the wedding of Duke Theseus, um, and entertainment, which they hope to. Um, perform at court and they've been rehearsing and of course the the running joke is that they're incompetent they don't get it they don't they're, they're they don't know how to do this they don't get it about theatrical convention they're hopelessly naive they're hopelessly ham-fisted and it what it winds up so that it's it's it's, it's also i mean it's it's bomb proof for performance uh amateurs can do it gorgeously and in fact sometimes amateurs are better because it's it's based on on the one hand insider's knowledge but it's so genial um and invitational it's it's a love letter to theatrical performance based on the sort of like cluelessness of, of those who want to enter it and and their ability nevertheless to perform something quite quite wonderful so so these um, these laborers are taking on roles where they're performing to lovers who are separated by warring families it's basically the story of Romeo and Juliet at some level except it doesn't end well it ends yes it ends very sadly and um, in this it's sort of accidental deaths so the key figures are pyramids. Thisbe, their families are warring. They have to whisper to one another through a hole in a wall. So wall is a character. The moon is a character. And the lion who uh, tears, who chases Thisbe away and makes um, Pyramus mistakenly imagine that she has been eaten. They kill themselves tragically at the end with that same sort of... So, And it's hilarious. And it's wonderful. And Again, I, I said that they're classic, you know, goof-ups. There are um, um, words inverted and malapropisms galore. And uh, and why does that haunt you, Linda? Because, because, it's, because it's the love letter be, to the theater? Or? Yeah, because it's a love letter to the theater and because it's, um, because it's so inclusive. I think it's really about at the roots of the magic of um, play acting, of just performing stuff we aren't, of putting on a costume and being not me. Mm. And, uh, and also, it's a fantasy about universal empathy, about sharing 
in fact, so that it it becomes um, it becomes uh, a, a parable, really, for hospitality. Um, which which it is, and, and 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 in fact, it winds up in in Midsummer Night's Dream being a test of all those fancy people for whom it's performed, and who tend to be making jokes at the expense of these laborers, and 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 um, being contemptuous. But in fact, it's when Duke Theseus winds up generously receiving their best efforts, that we know we can be one to him despite the many objectionable things he may have done by way of war and conquest. Um, and, and so I think it's also, frankly, I think it's a, it's a moral challenge. I think it's one that, um, that invites us to put aside certain snobberies and preconceived ideas and locate the commonality of pleasure. Anyway, this um, this poem does not begin with um, uh, a, a, a theatrical performance. It begins uh, instead with um, uh, a museum exhibit uh, that I saw in the city of Prague. And it's there. It, there, there rather famously were children's drawings that survived the concentration camp outside, um, that survived the war and were found in a, in a couple of suitcases, and from from Theresienstadt um, or Terezin. and uh, these were are are uh, many of them appear in a museum in the old uh, Jewish. Ghetto yes. in in Prague, and of course, since most of the children died uh, during the war, they're very poignant. And I was in that museum and was stunned to see that one of the drawings was, in fact, of the scene, a scene from Midsummer Night's Dream. So the children had been doing plays as well as having music lessons and drawing lessons. And there's again, there's huge poignancy in that. It it bespeaks their um, their aptitude for caring about um, arts and play and learning and or, or those who children. are only stories to one another. Yes. Yeah. But also about the adults who were caring for them, that they thought this was so central to the act of caretaking that they have art and plays and music. So the poem's called No Lion, No Moon, which, you know, is about those two characters in uh, the play within a play. And it's dedicated to Stepan Pollock, who, who made the drawing. He was... Uh, born in 1931, and he died uh, at the age of 12 in 1943, we're told in the exhibit. So, no lion, no moon. But there she is, fair Thisbe, twice. The once in dirndl and embroidered blouse, then letter by letter, Tisby on the wall above. Heart with arrow glossing the name, the heroine's affliction, and by consequence, her claim on us. Cheap paper, much yellowed these sixty years. The crayon wielded not so much with art as with the art of open-heartedness, which makes me think her lover himself so easily undone by words and by an open heart, unlikely 
to have scorned the hand that formed the letters misproclaiming Priam just above his head. What's Pyramus to you, child, or you and all Theresienstadt to Thisbe? That someone had the wherewithal to find the children crayons at all or guide them through theatricals? That someone, not just someone, but the sum of them, the commonweal inside this unfamiliar and malignant place, this camp, could find the heart to care for pictures, plays within a play, and injudicious lovers long before their keepers thought to use such things as camouflage the Red Cross sent observers once, and caring for such things to make of them something like a nursery for the yet-to-be-exterminated soul of Central Europe is a knot not even malice on the grand scale has dissolved. This be knows so little of the world as yet. The bit she can see through the chink in the wall has made her heart beat faster in its cage. But little as she knows, she knows the one thing. There are forms for this. His eyes will be like, lips like. She is not required, no more than the guards who have loaded the trains to make the whole thing up from scratch the transcript, and that stubborn other thing that gets transcription slightly wrong, if only rarely in our favor. Young Stepan left the lion out. Thank you, Linda. Yeah. Uh, it, there was a moment in the that I almost felt like you were speaking, well, you're speaking to, to many different and calling on different Stefan and different people, um, but there's a moment where you're you're talking about Thisbe, but I almost think you're speaking to yourself in a a way where you say there are forms for this, like to understand, yeah, like yeah. a way. Yeah, but I also think I I I, I strongly believe um, in the, the the foundational instinct of of playing at. I mean, I really think, so So it's about not having to, um, it's about rejecting those ghastly post-romantic um, uh, valorizations of originality as the mark of authenticity or the really real or the deeply felt. I think sort of, there's a kind of learning by rote. There's a sort of imitating the motions, um, speaking the lines, uh, or 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 inheriting um, a, 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 a flush left narrow um, couplet pattern in in poem that that really teaches us about feeling. It teaches us how to be human. And again, I think we see this in children. They practice. Uh, the sound of language before they master words. They practice the shape of phrases. There's a hilarious new um, 
video up on YouTube. My niece sent me a link to it where two twins in diapers in the family kitchen are carrying on this hortatory conversation with one another, it completely in da-da-da, but it goes da-da-da-da-da with a lot of gestures. And and it's it's very, very, very funny. But it's it's also an extreme version of what's quite typical. And so maybe people can go check that out on YouTube Yeah, yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> I think it's sort of baby twins, you know, converse, something like that. It's actually a, it's a stitch. It's really fun. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back. Um, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today, Linda Gregerson will be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Linda Gregerson joins me in the studio. Linda, thanks again for being here. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to have you. Um, so, also, well, we've we've been talking. You were just you've just read a poem for us, um, Moon and Lion. No lion, no moon. Oh, yeah. no lion, no moon. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, and I, it's lovely because it's actually it's you. You mentioned it's in the couplet form yeah. and so there's a lion and a moon like there's no lion or moon so there's two of those working <laughs> in the title as well um and you've said how important at some point i think also again uh, when speaking with david baker um to to write the poem um i must have a provisional shape for the stanza yeah, yeah. and and at some point you you discovered the tercet Right, and and that was a shape that you worked with for a chunk of time. I did in your two, writing life. Two, my second and third books are virtually entirely in that that form. What um, energy does it bring? Oh, to the... it was. I really felt like it saved my life. I was just. I I had my first book was poems written. I mean, it's it's the way I began writing was just. I I I I, I had no other option. I was able to master and they were they were what I think of as sort of block stanzas the lines were roughly the same length they were all flush left and they varied in the the stanza length would vary but there tended to be these solid blocks of um of words and I too solid uh, by the sounds of it way too too solid, solid way too solid and I think deeply misleading and it made the poems because I, I came upon my poems as upon a stranger's poems once. I remember they were they were collected. There was a wonderful, wonderful 
um, all poetry issue of Antaeus, and I was in there. It was just dense with poems. I was in there with all sorts of people I admired. I was thrilled to have poems in there, and I was reading from front to back through the issue, and I came to mine, and everybody was in alphabetical order. I came to mine, and I thought I was appalled at how jammed up everything was, and that what I'd counted what I heard in my own head as pacing was completely misrepresented in the form on the page. I was just so alarmed. I just threw me into despair. And I had to find a way of getting more light and air in and there. And was that, was that when you had been at Iowa, Linda? Or when were you figuring this part out? Yeah, yeah. Were, yeah. Were I mean, this, this was, this was after... A, I don't remember where I was, actually, when this, this particular... It would have been later. Yeah, much later, because... Um, those poems, that book didn't come out until um, 82, not much later. So a few years later, after I'd been to Iowa, I, I went back and did my PhD work at Stanford. I was then living in Boston. So it was a, Were you was working a, at the Atlantic Monthly? I was. Then, I was I working at the Atlantic Monthly. But I, I also, and forever on my dissertation, which we, we will not go there. The less said, the better. Um, and I... I but I'd kept writing in a I'd been working on poems. I finished my first book. I'd been very happy it, it, lucky it had been solicited by a small press and uh and 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 beautifully produced. And um Dragon's Gate. I hadn't changed by Dragon Gate. Yeah, yeah. And I hadn't changed uh modes primarily. And I just but I I knew I had to. I was just way uh alarmed. And so I I kind of messed around on the page a lot. I wasn't imitating anyone. I if I'd been cleverer, I might have gone to William Carlos Williams and imitated him and, and people have suggested it, but I didn't. I just I was sort of like there reinventing the wheel. And how did you move it across the page at first, Linda? Well you... I needed the thing I I, I because I felt like I needed a Opposition. I needed, I needed a syncopated form, um, because there were the speeding up and slowing down of syntax is is just so much the way thinking evolves for me on the page, and I wanted something to capture that, not to reproduce the syntax and the lineation because that would have killed it. I mean, it's just it's Too. deadly when you do that, deadly, deadly, but something oppositional. And so those deep indents and shallower indents, the long line, the short pivot line, the medium length line, it was they vary in, in all the ways that, again, they, they're sort of at odds with one another in every way I could contrive. And I felt, um, I really did feel saved when I came upon it. And it seems like those the the pivot line, which you said that is little, like the very one, short yeah. bit. It's rhythmically necessary for what's coming before and after it. But I notice some of those moments are. It's almost like the twin sound. Like it's like not always the word that's the meaning, but it's the rhythmic that's motion right. of that. That's right. That's right. That's right. So it's not, and, and in fact, I think it would be again deadly if words, and there tend to be one or two often isolated on that line were ones that were meant to be deeply underscored like the heavy were, here they are now you <laughs> the know meaning. let the string section swell <laughs> it's just it's it, ghastly right it's not that and some and very often in fact most often the um the momentum of syntax passes right through that pivot line so again it's lineation really jazzing it with syntax and um, what that means is that 
the lines are not a transcription of the way the poems sound on the voice. What they're meant to be is an equivalent. They're meant to give a reader a sense of proportionate space and sort of air, light and air, versus uh, the density of language moving through it. And, and is this why you wrote also the book Negative Capability in a way to talk about the space on the page as That's well? That's very interesting. You know, I, I didn't really... Um, because you feel so strongly about this. I do this, feel and it, strongly about it. I feel it. like there's like this feel, this passion or this manifesto, like this is the mission statement. Well, you know, of- I, if, I would that I had again been sort of cleverer or in possession enough to be writing something like a manifesto. I was, those were gathered occasional pieces. And of course I, I put heart and soul into them. But it was really, I, as I, if I can recall, I mean, it was David Lehman who suggested the title to me because he was editing the Poets on Poetry series at the time. And it was because I was so interested in, an, frankly, another aspect of poetic um, uh, deployment in the work of Mark Strand at the time. I'd written a fairly lengthy essay that I still think is one of the strongest in that, that um, book. And uh, about... Frankly, about about Mark's um, deployment of persona and and the vacating of self that is so central to his um, really to cognitive method in in those poems and also to the wit of them and to their very witty. Um, uh, theatricalism about theatricality about 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 ego and 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 so it was really from that angle uh, not not prosody per se that that I was thinking okay so then that is that so that's taken us away from the, yeah, the yeah. structure then right. so it was completely different that's interesting it was different that, it was different but I still think I mean I do think negative space on the page is enormously important and I mean you were absolutely right there and I'm 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 flattered that you suggest more coherence in my thinking than that I may be consciously aware of. Well, so how was it then that you were able to, after, because you feel so strongly about the Tercet then, and then in Magnetic North, move away from it? Then it's a, no, know, op- but the thing is, you can get to know something too well. Well, and you needed another opposition in I, a way. Uh, well, course, I needed to or- not, I, need, I, I was beginning to know it too well. and And since its whole point was to in a way, derail certain kinds of momentums. Once it became more predictable, once it became uh, a familiar mode of evolving or mode of knowing or mode of discovery. Does that creep up on you, Linda, where you feel like... Yeah, yeah. Because at some point it might just feel that it's right. And it did for a long time and still really challenging. And I don't mean to say I had done every possible, I had captured every possible variation on that, but I was, I did need to, I was not, I did need to see if I could do something else. And I tell you, I wasn't sure I could. No, I wasn't sure I could. I thought, I I thought this, I'm hooked up to this tercet as to life support. I don't know if I can go anywhere without it. Because it was so closely like that idea of how to think. Because if if I do 
think, <laughs> um, or insofar as I do, I really do think it's a, for me it's a syntactical project. It's syntax is what is is just what is the horse I ride on, um, and uh, so I. Um, I, 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 I had that lineation just helped me with it. But I also, the thing is, I, I've also, in fact, beginning um, a little in Magnetic North, but especially in the poems for the new volume, I'm trying to do something, in fact, less um, uh, f- fretted, uh, less um, strained. And 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 interrupted a, a, a more transparent kind of voicing, if you will, for that for me is like a whole new challenge. And what does that mean then for needing to know the structure, the form beforehand? How are you? Well, oh, when beforehand, I, I actually don't for these mean new beforehand. Oh. Um, when I start begin a poem, there's a kind of liquid stage when I'm not sure what it's going to look like on the page. And I spent a lot of time with the first, what becomes the first few lines of the poem, tossing out a hundred different versions and starting and letting it settle into whether it's going to be narrow lines, whether it's going to be couplets, or whether it's going to, as some of my, the poems in, two of the poems in Magnetic North do, scatter um, on the page. And it's very important to me to, to find that early so it's not at all ahead of time it's sort of inside the poem but at an early stage of composition so that I can then when I'm going on with it I've got the form set and which really come and it's the first lines it's the first lines yeah it really shape. is yeah we're going to take a short break and we'll be back you've got living writers today Linda Gregerson here in the studio Magnetic North Waterborne. Maybe we'll hear a poem from Waterborne when we sure. come back, Linda. That would be lovely. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Come read me, ding. Come tell me, ding. My ding, come tell me truly. What length or grief when we'll cut in will sit Welcome back. 
If you're just joining us, Linda Gregerson is here today on Living Writers. Linda, can you tell us a little bit about that that particular you, that song? That track, absolutely, <laughs> on this wonderful volumes one and two of Gene Redpath singing the songs of Robert Burns. And for those of you who could not believe you were hearing correctly, the title of that song is indeed Nine Inch Will Please a Lady. And it's set to the tune of The Quaker's Wife. And we were all dancing a little bit here in the studio. <laughs> um, so, so, Linda, we, we've been talking about Magnetic North. And, and now I was wondering, would you mind, because a lot of, it's interesting when I've been also looking through your, your website and, and different, different places, I've noticed that um, you've, you've roamed all over the U.S. in some ways. Maybe not the South. As much, not much, <laughs> too little. But but then you've also um, gone gone internationally as well. Um, <laughs> um, to to Prague most recently, to Italy. Yeah, actually, a, I'm teaching again in Prague this summer, which is lovely. And so that's with the Prague Summer Program. Yeah, there's there there there's there's a writers' conference there every July. Um, it's, which is wonderful, which is wonderful. And they're month-long workshops, but faculty tends to come in for two-week units. So so members of the workshop get to work with two different faculty. It's great. That sounds brilliant, yeah. actually. And, great and, city. And that's how the, the last poem that we just heard was one of your times exactly. in Prague. Exactly. Then, it was one. It was probably the first time I was in the city. Because yeah. it is. It's a beautiful city and haunting. And of course, it's haunted Bridge. by oh. its past. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, another place that's also haunted by its past and, yeah. and quite beautiful in a different way is is County Clare and and Movine and Kilkee and and you've I was wondering I've asked if you would read I don't usually make requests but I've asked if Linda would read a poem that came out of a time in Ireland. Um, Absolutely, staying at the home of my dear dear friend Tom Lynch, who is the soul of generosity in in uncountable ways. And one way was to give when my husband and uh, myself and our two girls, who were still quite young then, um, this beautiful, I think it was two and a half weeks uh, staying in his wonderful house in Movine in County Clare. Um, so this poem is dedicated to him and it's, it's in, let's see, it's in uh, four sections. And, uh, and Linda, I think he had asked that you write it in yeah. a book. Well, there. exactly. He, this was the rent we paid. <laughs> I had to leave a poem, which was fantastic. And in fact, we all wrote poems. Even Stephen wrote a poem, which was great. The girls produced drawings, and it was just, it was very, very sweet. I think one of the um, drawings is mentioned in the poem. So, yes, in fact, it is. It is. Um, so we were all trying to be creative, and it was such a gift to me, not just the holiday and the incredible place and the time with my family. Uh, and in fact, it also comes complete with beloved friends, you know, and, um, and dogs and horses and terrific things, but also um, the gift of being required to write a poem because I had been away. I'd been from writing poetry for way too long, and so I, um, this, it, was, it was fabulous um, to have an assignment. Uh, so, Cranes on the Seashore, one. Today, Tom, I followed the tractor ruts north along the edge of Damien's pasture. I missed all the dung slicks but one, the calves did not judge me, or comely darlings judged me benign. The ditches 
and the token bits of barbed wire weren't, I like to think, intended to halt my trespass much more than they did. The hedge-crowned chassis might have been one of my father's own. And then at the rise, Tom, the promised North Atlantic, and I'm fixed. Salt cure for room, rock cure for bureaucracy and blood-borne grudge. The farmers on Orkney favored this time of year for pillage, took to the sea just after the crops were in, cleared the mind. Two. Megan is not happy with her drawing of the rock face. She has fastened on only this one pure thing. The light-shot swells of the tide do not move her, the shattered interlacements and the rolling greens. She'd trade them all for the one right likeness of ice-thrust slate. Megan is not by nature ascetic. Her paper is smudged and the pencil lead snapped. She's after proof the earth leaps too. Three. At eight o'clock on a Wednesday evening, 1874, one Jeremiah Dowling, this was June, quite near the solstice, therefore light, took aim, as he thought, at a pair of cranes. The girls in question, both of them in service at the Ledmore farm, were washing skeins of new-spun wool in the surf and must have bloodied the wool when they fell, but did not die, or had not, when the county paper went to press. Of Mr. Dowling's youth and upright family, the writer cannot say enough. His obvious promise, their moneyed remorse. We may thank our different pieties. We're less inclined to think these help. We'd like to think our present dispositions bear more scrutiny, that girls may be lovely as cranes and safe. Four. Behind the row of holiday villas, the hay has started to rot in the fields. On the weather, the hay and the holiday makers agree. But Damien's calves have all been sound and three to come, and Damien's father is glad for the extra. Villas need carpenters, work. It's like this at home now. The parts you sell in order to pay for the parts you keep till my uncle is told by the barman one day would he please not come in in his farm clothes. It puts off trade. A little longer, barman, bid the locals then. A little while is all we'll take. I lied about the calves, though. You can see the smallest Holstein's lame. Emma had thought he was simply less greedy. So late did he turn toward the bucket of mash, and now she can hardly bear to look. God keep us from the gun sight. Here is one for the landlord, and one, we're almost gone, for the road. 
Thank you, Linda. And perhaps if you don't mind, we could dedicate that to the memory of Sonny Carmody, Damien's <laughs> yeah. father, who, who passed away. Uh, oh, my God. So I, but I actually he's in, hadn't heard that. I'm sorry, no, then. To, yeah. But he's in your poem. Sonny is. is in your poem, is. Um, which is, is so lovely. Um, and so so the, the places that this, this place definitely worked itself into your being while while you were there is that and Prague also these sure. moments is that um, is that a way also Linda that that Michigan the Midwest because if we well, we started talking about how in 1987 you you came here yeah. maybe without knowing that it would be this long th- that thing. Because what keeps you? I tell you, for me, it was really coming back to the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in a small town um, in Carrie? northern Illinois. Yeah, Carrie, okay. and I mean, it was very small then. And uh, and my other sort of family ties are to Central Wisconsin, which is where my father is, grew up, and where his extended family is, and in fact, where my parents moved when my dad retired. So it's, I'm very much of the Midwest, and had then lived on on either coast, and loved, especially loved the East, and all things being equal, as they never are, might well have chosen to stay there. Um, In fact, I... I adore it in Ann Arbor. I feel extremely lucky to be here. And I, as it turns out, you know, there are those accidents, those places you go for jobs, and my God, we both got employed and got to live together and got to raise our kids. As it turns out, the children we raised are Midwesterners. I mean, they are down to their bones. Megan was born here. Emma was two when we came. And uh, they love this place. This is what this is what feels like home. I mean, the whole and the whole, you know, the rhythm of the landscape as you're driving through the sort of space between farmhouses, the way the logic, the way the buildings organize. The I mean, it just it's um, the, 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 the the those sort of angled parking lots in the little towns like Dexter, the ones that you know are neither um, uh, parallel uh, to the to the curb nor um, completely at a right angle to it, but the, the, the kind of thing that's sort of pickup truck friendly and it's just the trees that even Emma is is absolutely rhapsodic about the varying um, shades and textures of gray that govern this landscape through so much of the winter to her they they're they're a sort of you know ground zero for aesthetic uh, resonance. It, it just is. And, and so this is Emma of fantastic. your poem. That's Emma of my poem. That's my daughter. Also who was concerned yeah. with the, the landmass of the rock. Yeah, in, yeah. In well, Megan was the one trying oh, to draw oh, there. Was, but, oh, okay. so, but both of them. The, but, the, but the point is, you know, it, it's this really is home. And I, 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 I think I'm very profoundly a Midwesterner myself. I really do. And, and you have these, and, and that's a lovely thing. Yeah, actually. And John too, <laughs> is he? The, my husband. Yes. My husband, Stephen. Oh, Stephen. That's all right. Oh, dear. And Stephen, um, poor guy, he has to make cameo appearances in the poems from time to time. Um, he doesn't always, he never gets to vote 